Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. I'm Matt Emerson, and I'm on the board of directors here at CBR. And I'm joined today by Luke Stamps, who is also on the board of directors, and Winston Hotman, who's our uh, third member. We're not joined today by our fourth and final member, Brandon Smith, but to be honest, that's probably for the better. Uh, <laughs> CBR. Appreciate is, that ranking too. Yeah, that's right. Brandon's fourth. <laughs> CBR is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. And if you enjoy what you hear today, we invite you to check out our website at centerforbaptistrenewal.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Baptist Renewal and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Baptist Renewal. And don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. I always feel pretty awkward saying that, but there it is. And so in today's show, we are continuing our discussion of the Manifesto for Evangelical Baptist Catholicity. If you've listened to our previous episodes, uh, you know that the Manifesto, or if you're familiar with CBR, you know the Manifesto is a, a document that just articulates the basics of our approach to the Christian faith and to Baptist faith and practice within the Christian faith. And so there are 11 articles in the manifesto, and today we'll be talking about Article 3, Always Reforming. If you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, we encourage you to go back and listen to our conversations about Article 1 on the priority of God and His Word, and on Article 2 on the centrality of the gospel. And so this week we'll be talking about Always Reforming, and to get us started, I'll read Article 3, and then we'll jump in. So Article 3 reads this way. We affirm the fundamentals of Reformational theology, especially as they are expressed in the great sole of the Reformation. Fallen humanity can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And so we want to say very basically with this uh, third article that we are Protestants. Uh, we're reformational. And so even saying that brings up a whole host of different conversation topics. One of the big ones is how Baptists should be considered in relation to other Reformation traditions. And so there's a, a conversation about whether Baptists should be considered separatists, whether they should be, be considered Anabaptists. Wh where do Baptists come from would be the, the big question. Um, behind those kinds of debates. And so, Luke, uh, what do you think? Are we, are we from the Anabaptists? Are we from the English separatists? Are we from outer space? Where do Baptists come from and how do they relate to the Reformation? Well, I think we can trace our lineage uh, back to John the Baptist through a trail of blood. Um, no, I don't think that. <laughs> you know, that, you know, that, that, that was a, a, a popular view, especially in the American South in the 1800s, that there was this kind of Baptist successionism all the way back to the beginning. Uh, that's kind of one major view in, in Baptist history about Baptist origins. Uh, another major view um, about Baptist origins would tie the Baptist movement back to the continental Anabaptists. And there's still some who would make an argument like that today. Um, but in my view, I'm not a historian, Baptist historian per se, um, but a theologian with a great interest in Baptist history. Uh, but as far as I can tell, um, the origins of the Baptist movement have their roots in uh, 17th century English separatism. Um, and, you know, the story is kind of two, two different stories. The story of the general Baptists um, early in the, the 17th century 
and then the story of the particular Baptists uh, in the late 1630s. Uh, but in both cases, they, they're emerging from uh, English separatism. Um, in the case of the General Baptists, no doubt they had some uh, ties uh, to the Continental Anabaptists. But all this to say, long story short, it's a mistake to simply equate Baptists with Anabaptists. Uh, there's there's uh, obviously a commonality on a number of points related to a believer's church, religious liberty, believer's baptism, although keeping in mind that the Anabaptists and the early general Baptists sprinkled, you know, it took the particular Baptists to get the mode right uh, all the way under the water. Uh, but, you know, there's some commonalities between the two movements, but they have separate histories and separate um, identities. Um, so that, you know, you have contemporary Anabaptists and like the Mennonite church, which is very different than the way that the Baptist movement developed both in England and in America. So all that to say, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, we can trace our heritage as Baptists through English separatism back to the Church of England and the way the Reformation took hold um, in Britain uh, in the 16th century. So uh, we have a claim to being part of the, uh, the Reformation. That's why we use the term here, reformational. Uh, we're not trying to say that Baptists are distinctively reformed. That's a whole other debate. Uh, certainly there have been Baptists who are more or less Calvinistic. Uh, we're not trying to lay claim to the sort of capital R reformed tradition, but we are reformational, at least in the sense that uh, our earliest um, developments came out of uh, the reformational movement in England. Yeah, and so this matters immensely, really, in terms of Baptist identity, because the charge is often laid at Baptist's feet that we are sort of anti-institutional, anti-creedal, um, individualistic in our conception of doctrinal formation, and that, that that can be traced all the way back to our beginnings. In other words, there's really no hope for Baptists to be anything but individualists uh, who are unconcerned with what the rest of the church has believed. It's just kind of me and my Bible in terms of doctrinal formation. But <clears throat> I think what you're saying, Luke, and um, what, what we've argued numerous times in various venues is simply that, no, the early Baptists, both general and particular Baptists, conceived of themselves as part of the broader Christian tradition and particularly part of the broader Protestant or Reformational movement that was happening uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and so, you know, we, 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 don't, we won't go into all the details here, but, you know, if you were to go <clears throat> on the General Baptist side, if you were to go read the Orthodox Creed by Thomas Monk, um, he's, he's affirming all three ecumenical creeds explicitly in one of the articles of the Orthodox Creed. Likewise, with the particular Baptists, um, they're affirming the, the, the creeds, but they also are using language that's drawing on other Protestant confessions of faith, faith most, most notably, of course, Westminster. Um, and then they're using both the Orthodox Creed and Second London are using language that's not just reformational, but it's ancient, right? So they're using ancient Christian language about the doctrines of the Trinity, doctrines of, doctrine of Christology, doctrine of scripture. So uh, early Baptists conceived of themselves as part of the broader Christian tradition and, and more particularly the, the Reformation. And they were conceived that way by others as well. Um, I, I wanted to kind of plug a book here, not that we get anything out of it, but um, 
uh, I don't know if anyone has read this book, Orthodox Radicals by Matthew Bingham. Have you guys checked this out? I mean, it's, it's uh, I think, kind of a state-of-the-art uh, history of the early particular Baptists, anyway. Um, and he makes the argument, essentially, that the, 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 even the very term particular Baptist, if we're talking about kind of post uh, post 1638, you know, late late 1630s and 1640s, it's kind of a miss. It's kind of an, an anachronism to refer to what was going on as particular Baptists. They actually were just Congregationalists uh, who became convinced of, of believers' baptism. So the Congregationalists are emerging out of the established church, the Church of England, uh, as a part of you know this these various separatist movements um, who are retaining uh, Reformation doctrine, but they just become convinced that the church is to be made up of visible saints. Uh, but the Congregationalists are still baptizing their babies, which kind of creates this, this halfway house, right, um, where there's a tension in Congregationalism. And eventually, some of those Congregationalists become convinced that, you know what, we should just baptize those who make a public profession of faith. If the church is to be made up of visible saints, if the church is not to be a function of the state, essentially, then we just need to baptize those who are believers. And so, um, the, the the believers' baptism position that emerges in the in, in the 1630s uh, and 40s among the particular Baptists. I know this is kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, but this is really important for who we are as Baptists. Uh, but that movement that emerges is is growing organically out of Reformation ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. Now, people yeah. can, can differ with like how that, you know, whether or not that's cons- consistent with, you know, other other sort of branches of the of the Protestant movement. But I mean, it's just simply a matter of history. It's not really uh, even a value judgment to suggest that the early particular Baptists are emerging out of a reformed movement, um, namely uh, uh, 17th century congregationalism. So, that, I, that, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just say, I think it's interesting to think about where that anti-credal, anti-tradition reputation comes from, because it's a much later development. Uh, you know, if any, if any of our listeners are familiar with the term landmarkism, uh, that really, you know, was the kind of movement that solidified this suspicion towards the creeds, suspicion towards the broader tradition. It's actually the tra- tradition I grew up in. Uh, we grew up in my church with an annual conference in which we'd walk through the trail of blood uh, that, uh, uh, Luke was referencing earlier, you know, this idea of, and, and, and so it's interesting that part of that movement in its reaction against the broader tradition had to go back and rewrite early Baptist history mm. and, and try to establish the foundations. And really, I think we would all say a historically naive way, um, <clears throat> attempting to link it back to Christ and sort of this almost quasi apostolic secession type of uh, uh, an idea. And uh, so that it, it was illuminating for me to come to the realization that this isn't how Baptists have always been. Um, from, from the earliest point in time, they were very much firmly within the great tradition right. of the church, what we would call the, you know, little C Catholicity. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the reason we were belaboring this right now is because you have a number of different contemporary reformed theologians who, you know, sort of always want to refer to Baptists as Anabaptists. And what they intend to communicate by doing so is that to be a Baptist, again, just to kind of go back to what I said earlier, just to be a Baptist just is 
to reject any kind of external or traditional authority, uh, to not care about creeds, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, in a number of ways, that's just not true. Uh, and just to follow up on what you said, Winston, the no creed, but the Bible slogan was actually a, a, a Campbellite mm-hmm. slogan, not, not something that originated in Baptist life. You know, but we need to, we even need to press in on the the charge of Anabaptism because if you were to go back and and look at the Anabaptist early Anabaptist confessions of faith written before uh, early Baptist confessions of faith, there are even some Anabaptists who are concerned about preserving traditional doctrine and language in their confessions. That's not every Anabaptist, but it is some of the Anabaptist movements, and it's particularly true of the Waterlander Mennonite confessions. Okay. And so the reason that that's important is because if you, if you go back and read Baptist history, if there is an Anabaptist influence on early general Baptists, it comes from the Waterlander Mennonites, a very particular group of Anabaptists uh, who migrated into Holland. And when John Smith and Thomas Helwes come up from England, they encounter these Waterlander Mennonites uh, uh, there. And it's those kinds of Anabaptists that influence in some way Helwes, who then comes back to England and, and is in part uh, the beginning of the General Baptist movement there. So even, even when we lay the charge of Anabaptism at somebody's feet, we have to be careful what we're saying. Yes, there were spiritualist Anabaptists. There were, there were Anabaptists who emphasized uh, receiving extra biblical revelation from God or, or a kind of pietistic um, anti-intellectual faith. But those weren't the only kinds of Anabaptists, and they certainly weren't the kinds of Anabaptists that actually may have had any influence at all on early English, especially general Baptists. You know, so we just, I, I don't think that um, many people know the particulars of early Baptist history. <laughs> And I, and I, Baptists included, we don't know our own history well, but certainly non-Baptists uh, don't know it well. And they, there are even those who used to be Baptists who now aren't Baptists who want to use it against us. Oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> so <laughs> all, you know, all of our most vocal critics are former Baptists. I mean, this is what yeah. I found in my own anecdotal experience. But yeah, you're, you're right. That, 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 that We almost use the term Anabaptist as, as if it were sort of transparently pejorative like oh well we don't we don't want to be anabaptists we're we're magisterial reformers not anabaptists uh but you know at least two cheers for the anabaptists who were arguing for religious liberty Mm -hmm. and who were willing to be drowned for the sake of their faith while the magisterial reformers uh were were still uh, you know exacting um you know the the death penalty on heretics Mm -hmm. you know so uh so yeah i mean that the anabaptists get a bad rap uh, so don't hear us saying that because we don't trace, you know, bad, early Baptist origins to the Anabaptists. So that means that all of the Anabaptists were were bad. I mean, you know, we kind of think, well, you know, if you label someone Anabaptist, they're going to lead the next peasants revolt or something like that. Um, you know, no, I mean, like there there were saner, um, uh, more traditional even Anabaptists. I mean, there's still some problems, you know, with certain Anabaptists. Um, doctrines on Christology, you know, for example, like the whole idea of celestial flesh and things like that. Um, you know, that we could, we could, we could critique that and we would, but like the early Baptists again are emerging, not from that directly, but, um, are inheriting, 
you know, the common faith of the Church of England in a lot of ways. You right. know, some of the, some of the language that's in our early creeds or our early confessions of faith um, is taken straight out of uh, the Articles of Religion. I mean, if you look at the at the 1678 Orthodox Creed of of the General Baptists, I mean, there's entire paragraphs lifted from the Articles of Religion. You yeah. know, so um, it's just it's simply not the case that they're because you're right. We do hear a lot of especially Reformed theologians who who uh, act as if there uh, is magisterial or confessional Protestantism, which is just sort of Reformed Presbyterian, Lutheran, and Anglican, and then there's Anabaptists. And what they forget, at least in an American context, uh, is, well, the largest Protestant denomination in the country, <laughs> you know, like, you know, oh, oh yeah, don't forget about us over here. Um, and I'm not trying to be, you know, boastful about that, but it's just always interesting to me that uh, the, the, the people who, who are scholars and write the books tend to define out of existence the largest Protestant denomination in America. Yeah. Um, so you're right. We need to recover our own heritage if we're going to be able to be in a position to correct that. Right. And to, you know, to be honest, there are also Baptists who have been invested in divesting us of any connection with the magisterial reformation for the purpose of uh, basically denying any kind of Calvinist thought in our roots. Right. So on the one hand you have reformed folk and um, others in America who, who want to deny that Baptists have any connection to the reformation so that we can't be called reformational. Um, but then on the other hand, you have Baptists who want to deny any connection to the magisterial reformation because they don't want us to be called Calvinists. And so, you know, what we want to say is very simply that no, the, what the evidence shows when you go back and look at early Baptist thought, confessions, uh, is and just the historical development is that Baptists are, first of all, rooted in the Christian tradition as defined particularly by Nicene Trinitarianism and Chalcedonian Christology. They are very clearly Protestants in terms of their affirmation of the, I mean, this is a bit anachronistic in terms of using this rubric, but in terms of affirming the five sole. And then um, not just Protestant, but um, particularly separatists, right? They're coming out of the separatist movement in England. And so we, we just want to point to the actual historical reality that's shown in events and confessions and early Baptist writings of where Baptists actually came from both socially and uh, I guess doctrinally. That's what, that's what we want to communicate first of all in this particular article. Any you guys have any other thoughts to add on that? No, I think that that pretty much covers it. And so, yeah, identity next, you know, in the next podcast, I mean, we could obviously say more about what it means to be a Baptist, but, but for starters, I think we have to position it, position ourselves within the broader Reformation project. Right. And so in that regard and in situating ourselves in the, in the Reformational context, and I just mentioned the five sole. So we are committed uh, at CBR and we go through the, this in the manifesto we're committed to these five sole so we're committed to sola scriptura that's and i'm just going to read a few things here so bear with me for a second we're committed to sola scriptura that scripture alone is the sole final authority in all matters of christian belief and obedience 
While there may be other derivative or ministerial authorities in the church, scripture alone is the definitive witness to Christ and therefore is the final bar of appeal for all the other doctrinal and ethical claims. So that's what, you know, <clears throat> this is how we, in our, our post that sort of expounds on the actual article statement, this is how we explain what we mean when we say we're committed to sola scriptura. Um, sal sola gratia, salvation is a gift of grace alone. It's not a wage earned for obedience. It's not in any respect the result of human merit. Even if that merit is conceived of as a gift worked in and through us by God, grace and merit are mutually exclusive paths to justification and life. And one of those, merit, actually leads to death. Um, <clears throat> sola fide, uh, we, by which we mean salvation in its legal or forensic aspect is received by faith alone apart from any good works performed by the believer. It's not a stand-in for righteousness. Faith isn't, uh, but it's the passive reception of the gift of Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to the ungodly who trust him. So as Christus, Christ alone is the way of salvation. He alone is the believer's wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. As the incarnate God, he's the only mediator between God and men and the only hope for everlasting life and forgiveness. And then soli deo gloria, the exclusive claims made in the previous four sole serve to underscore the ultimate glory that belongs to the triune God alone. So, and we say a bit, I didn't read every single sentence in those five, but uh, that, that's where we stand uh, at CBR in terms of our relation to the Reformation. And we could talk about any number of these, but I, I think the one that often comes up in conversations surrounding what we're trying to do at CBR, namely retrieve doctrine and retrieve ancient hermeneutics, uh, ancient ethical practices and beliefs, this sort of thing. The one that comes up often in that regard is sola scriptura. So to put it, you know, bluntly, um, we keep saying that we believe that scripture alone is our authority, but then we also go and try to say, well, Nicene Trinitarianism is authoritative or Chalcedonian Christology is authoritative, or we should, you know, submit to these confessions or creeds in some sort of way, whatever we mean by submit there. So let's talk a little bit about, about that. What's our, how, how do we conceive of the relationship between a, a very clear, I think, I mean, we wrote it, so I think it's clear, uh, but a, a very clear affirmation of Sola Scriptura on the one hand, and then an emphasis on retrieving ancient uh, hermeneutical practices and uh, historic doctrinal beliefs and statements? How do, how do we relate those two things together? I mean, I would just say from my perspective, my, my focus being early Christian studies, any faithful retrieval of at least the early church's approach to scripture and doctrine affirms the absolute supremacy of scripture. I mean, to, to, to do otherwise would be to um, misappropriate what they're doing, what they're saying about, uh, about scripture, about revelation. Um, and so uh, certainly for my part, and I know from yours, uh, approaching the, the great tradition of the church is always seeing it as, as an aid to understanding uh, the supreme authority uh, of scripture, the, 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 the supreme revelation um, in scripture. Um, and so it's always exercising, if, if it's exercising authority, it's, it's a subsidiary authority um, underneath that of scripture. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I'm reminded of a, a line from Thomas Oden uh, in his uh, book, Classical Christianity, which is a systematic theology 
that draws on the resources of, of, of Christian history, especially the early church fathers. Uh, but he makes a point in the introduction of that book to say that um, to, to emphasize the tradition is to emphasize scripture because the history of Christianity is largely the history of scriptural interpretation. So it's not as if to take, to, to, to take a step towards tradition is to take a step away from the Bible. In fact, it's just the opposite. Uh, that to the degree that we really dig into the writings of the church fathers, we're dealing with exegesis. We're dealing with people who took the Bible with the utmost seriousness, um, more so even than many of us today, right? Um, who see the scripture almost as a sacrament. You know, it's, it's this encounter with the divine, um, the, the source of our life in Christ. And, and so, yeah, I mean, to emphasize the tradition on this point is not something that's to take a step outside of biblical authority. I mean, one thing that we emphasize in our commentary on it, and that I'm sure my students get sick of me saying, because I talk about it in every class, but uh, it's just really hel really helpful to me that the, the work of Heiko Obermann, um, who was a, a historian of uh, the late medieval and Reformation eras, and in one of his books, The Forerunners of the Reformation, um, he suggests that tradition has not meant the same thing uniformly across you know, the history of Christian thought. People admit different things by tradition. Um, and he suggests that there are primarily two views of tradition that emerge from the early centuries of the church. Uh, the first view he calls cleverly enough tradition one uh, and the second tradition two. So according to tradition one, um, the tradition is seen as basically an exegetical guide. The Bible is seen as the sole written revelation of God. And the tradition is seen as an authoritative, even if fallible, uh, guide to interpreting the Bible. But the Bible is what is the source and standard of, of truth. Tradition two sees the tradition essentially as a second source or a second prong of revelation alongside the Bible. So that the tradition can, in a sense, give new revelation, give more content, more stuff that you have to believe, so to speak. Um, and that's the view that b became prominent in the medieval Roman Catholic Church and so on. So that when the reformers come along and talk about scripture alone as this, the sole source of our faith and practice. So Luther says, you know, popes can err, councils can err, but only the Bible is the infallible word of God. Um, they're not suggesting that therefore tradition has no role to play in, in, in the theological task. I mean, both Luther and, and, uh, and even more pronounced ways, Calvin uh, are seeking to situate their interpretations of scripture within the Christian tradition. So if you read Calvin's Institutes, you'll see him um, frequently referencing St. Augustine, right, who was, who was the reformer's favorite church father, uh, but also other authors as well. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux was one of his favorite medieval theologians. And so they're, they're, they're not trying to, the reformers are not trying to overthrow the creedal foundations of the church. They're simply trying to reform the church on the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of salvation. Um, so that what you have them affirming, you know, the, 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 the basics of, of creedal Christianity from the early centuries. Um, and so they're not casting out tradition altogether. They're just simply seeing tradition in service of the word rather than somehow on par with the word. Now, I, I can't remember if it, who it was exactly. I think Keith Matheson is a, he's a reformed theologian who's picked up on this, but um, some have suggested that, that, the early Anabaptists and, and many evangelicals today essentially have a tradition zero approach to, to the tradition where, you know, at least in, in our, in, at least in theory, we sort of 
pretend as if the tradition plays no role. It's just me and the Holy Spirit and the Bible, and that's it. That's all I need. Now, of course, in practice, no one does that, right? Everyone has authorities in their lives. Everyone has books that they read, commentaries that they appeal to, pastors that they listen to. So everyone, you know, is listening to some other authority besides the Bible. Um, even, even to say no creed but the Bible or no creed but Christ is a kind of creed. <laughs> you know, it's an extra biblical affirmation about Scripture's authority. It's not like that's a verse in First John, you know, no creed but the Bible. That's, a, that's an extra biblical uh, phrase that's seeking to say something about uh, the nature of Scripture. So all of us have a tradition. All of us have a creed. Um, no one actually lives outside of tradition in some viewpointless place. There is no view from nowhere. All of us are situated in a particular tradition. And what we just want to say is, well, if you go back to the early Baptists, uh, they were quite aware of uh, the, the Trinitarian and Christological beliefs of the past and were eager to demonstrate that they were not departing from those things because they were being accused of that kind of stuff, right? right. Because they were dissenting on baptism and, and on the nature of the church, which are important descents from the magisterial reformation, uh, they had to clear up the fact that they weren't trying to invent a new religion. And so right. you find them in their confessional documents sort of bending over backwards to say, listen, we affirm the same doctrines that you affirm, not just Trinity and Christology, but even the great doctrines of the reformation. Yes. And we're not saying something that's, that's tradition less. And here we are 500 years later trying to convince everybody still. <laughs> that's right. I, I do think that one of the uh, concerns that a lot of people have, it, it tends to not be so much about retrieval of doctrine as much as retrieval of hermeneutics and, and, and approaches to exegesis that have characterized the, the tradition uh, for, for thousands of years. I think there's a sense, a concern among a lot of people that, especially those who are steeped primarily in a, you know, a grammatical historical approach to scripture, that when they see, you know, this retrieval, that the, the challenge that they see to sola scriptura is, you know, oh, is this going to involve some kind of embrace of allegorical readings of scripture that untether, you know, the, the meaning of the text from any sort of, uh, parameters or any sort of boundaries. And so I'd be curious to, I, I mean, I have my own thoughts on that, but mainly along the lines of really the things that are often critiqued about early Christian hermeneutics are characteristic of, of Christian biblical interpretation well up into the modern period. Um, I mean, you just have to read the Puritans uh, to get a sense of how much of that was still preserved as, you know, well into our own nation's history. Yeah. Um, in, in, in terms of Baptists, you just have to go read Benjamin Keach, who everybody points to as, hey, this is like the exemplary early Baptist. He's uh, <clears throat> traditional as an understanding of the doctrines of the Trinity and Christology. He's thoroughly Baptist. He's got this great stuff on covenants. You go read his biblical interpretation it is like oh hey here's the fourfold sense mm -hmm. hang on you know back that train up there then uh <laughs> and i you know i just think that uh some of the reaction to retrieving early christian interpretation is actually rooted in a lack of reading early christian interpretation so we, we read a paragraph or two in our hermeneutics textbook 
that says, oh, in the ancient church, they used allegory as a tool, but they didn't pay attention to the details of the text and they ignored the intention of the human author. Boom, done. Hey, look, we're in, you know, a, a, a scare quote from Luther decrying allegory when in fact he also used allegory all over the place, right? So, you know, this, this is the kind of approach that we've gotten from our from some of our hermeneutics texts and notes and whatever in the last uh, half century, at least, probably longer than that. And to be honest, I think it's because we're not asking people to actually read primary sources. If you were to go read early Baptists, much less early Christians, uh, you would find that their conception of right interpretation is no less rigorous than ours in the sense that they are as concerned or perhaps more concerned with, you know, if you want to use the phrase right interpretation as we are. The difference is not concern over getting it right. The difference is what the criteria are for what is right. And I, th I think some people would even take that statement that I just made and say, well, yeah, of course, their, their conception of what is right isn't rooted in the text and ours is. And that would also be, I mean, honestly, you know what that would be? It would be bearing false witness because it's just not true. Uh, if you go back and read the early Christians, they are concerned with the details of the text, with how that tells us what the human author meant, with the connection between the human author's intention and the divine author's intention, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they also have a, another set and an uh, maybe even an overriding set of concerns in which those particular questions are asked. And their, their overriding concern is, how does this text help me to love God and love neighbor? Yes, the details of the text, the, the language of the text, the, the original language, the historical background, human author's intention, all that matters in arriving at an answer to that question, but it's not the only source of arriving at answers to that question. And so, you know, personally, um, I think that to say that sola scriptura is antithetical to retrieving early Christian hermeneutics misunderstands both sola scriptura and early Christian hermeneutics. Mm. I'll leave it at that for now. And to say that is not to suggest that modern exegetical methods give us nothing. You know, I mean, it's not like we're trying to go back behind, you know, modern methods. I mean, we, we all benefit from it. You know, Todd Billings in his book on hermeneutics suggests anyone who reads a modern translation of the Bible is benefiting from the, the critical methodologies of the modern era. And so, yes, of course, we're not trying to say that, like, knowing, you know, Hebrew syntax better than many of the Greek fathers did gives us no benefit. Of course it does, right? I mean, there are many benefits to the historical critical method, grammatical historical method. Um, but, it, I mean, it, 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 you sort of know what a thing is by its telos, by its purpose, its goal. And that's what the fathers get, I think, better than many modern interpreters, uh, as Matt is suggesting there, that so there's this there's this famous line in in uh, Augustine's on Christian teaching where he makes this point that um, you know sometimes we get it wrong, we all do right as we interpret scripture, we don't get the author's intention right. And and Augustine admits that that's possible. Um, so what do you do in a situation like that? Should you just sort of despair? You know that you're you're going to always make these missteps. So what then? Well, he suggests well if if what you're saying is building you up in love of God and love of neighbor, 
then you can afford some missteps if you're trying hard. You know, if, if you're within orthodoxy, that's one parameter, right? You're not saying something that's unorthodox. You're not saying that Christ has three natures or that he's not fully God or something like that. Uh, you're within the boundaries of orthodoxy. You're making a good faith effort to understand the, the, uh, the truth of scripture. Even if you get it wrong, if, you're, if it's causing you to love God, love your neighbor, that's the purpose of scripture, right? It's not, it's not to say that uh, Augustine wants to leave uh, an untutored reader of scripture in that place. Like we want to teach them into a better method so that they'll get it right the next time, you know? So he's not suggesting a kind of pure relativism, but it is interesting where he places the priority. It's not on sort of getting like we, we this sort of pristine, um, you know, reproduction of the historical events or the historical intention of, of the ancient author, but actually it's to be transformed uh, into Christ's image, which I think, man, if you could read that and not be challenged as a modern reader, then something's wrong. So the best thing we can do is just go read these guys, right? And that's part of what we're doing with this reading challenge is to say, as, as hopefully many of you did in January, uh, go read Irenaeus on the apostolic preaching. We could also mention uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, where he just sort of is trying to demonstrate how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so you're getting these early glimpses into how they actually did it. Uh, and that's the best way to dis dispel some of the myths is actually go read it. It certainly doesn't mean we're going to agree with all of their interpretations. Sometimes sometimes allegory is fanciful, right? And sometimes all of us are going to admit, yeah, that's 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 probably going too far. Like, I don't know that we have any warrant to say that that reading is is, is right. Uh, but then but, other times it's not, <laughs> you know, other times it's quite compelling, especially as we think about it in terms of, of servicing our love of God and neighbor. In, in 500 years from now, we're going to look back on today's interpretive uh, examples and say, well, yeah, that's a good example of this method. And that's a really bad example. I mean, it, you know, it, we need to be careful that we don't equate the worst examples of, I mean, <laughs> Uh, Griffin Gulledge, I'll, I'll give him a shout out, sent us an example the other day about, I think it was Andrew of St. Victor saying that uh, Saul was told to kill all the cows because the Amalekites could have turned themselves into cows by magic or something like that, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's like, okay, well, right. Um, or like St. Augustine's numerology in the right. city. I mean, it's fascinating, but it's just bizarre. Right. You know? But yes, no. so so you know we can all point to bad examples, but we can also point to bad examples of a historical grammatical method. You know we shouldn't we right. shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The other thing I would say is oftentimes things that sound weird to us only sound weird because we are unfamiliar with the unity of the Bible centered on the person and work of Christ, both at a kind of uh, narrative, prophetic, intertextual level but also from an ontological level, that is what the Bible actually is, um, which is a testimony to God, the son incarnate breathed out by the Holy spirit of God, mm. the glory of the father. And so if you think about the Bible that way, of course, it's all connected. And so maybe it, at first glance, you know, a connection that a, a father makes between one passage and another seems, you know, historically grammatically unwarranted. But the reason it sounds unwarranted to you is because we've been taught to read the Bible piecemeal. Whereas they were taught to read the Bible as one book, ultimately connected by one author, God, the Holy Spirit, with one subject, God, the Son incarnate, to the glory of God, the Father. 
And that, that changes the way that you read. Yeah. The other thing I would say is that they were operating from um, a standpoint in which not only is the whole Bible connected by, as one book, but also that Bible is situated within uh, a doctrine of creation and redemption, which centers around, again, God the Son incarnate, so that everything in the Bible can not only be interrelated to itself, but it's also therefore interrelated to everything else because creation itself is centered around the same thing, just like the Bible is centered around the same, just like redemption history itself is centered around the same thing, the same person. So a lot of times I don't think we understand that um, when we read something and it sounds off to us, it doesn't sound off necessarily because it's wrong. Mm. may sound off because we're coming at it from a totally different metaphysical and uh, theological set of commitments. And, and if you just kind of yeah. consider some of the things in the New Testament itself, right? I mean, there, there, are, there are readings of the Old Testament in the New Testament that if they weren't in the New Testament, we would say are absolutely fanciful allegory. <laughs> yep. You know, when Christ says that the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness was Christ. Or when Jesus himself says that the, the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness was the cross, right? Or, or, or when, you know... Or the book of Hebrews. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, the whole, you know. whole book of Hebrews. <laughs> or, or, or when, you know, the apostle uh, sees the, you know, a psalm written by the ancient king David when he fled, uh, to, he fled Adullam to the cave. And the New Testament authors see that as a type of Judas betraying Jesus. Right. You know, th those are the kind of things that if they weren't in the New Testament, the modern uh, interpreter, the grammatical historical interpreter would absolutely lampoon those things. And so the question is, are we going to take our cues from the modern grammatical historical interpreter or from Jesus and the apostles? I'll stake my claim with Jesus and the right. apostles. If, if, the, if Jesus and the apostles would fail your hermeneutics class, maybe the answer is to change the way you teach hermeneutics. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. 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 Just, just to piggyback off of what Matt was saying, I, I think one way to put it is the ontology that undergirds scriptural typology is the same ontology undergirding much of the allegorical interpretations right. of scripture. It, it is it is based right. in the unity um, of the word who is the witness of scripture. Um, right. So, yeah. And yeah. so, again, that none of this means that we're trying to jettison entirely historical grammatical approach approaches we're not right nor nor does it mean that we think everything that was said prior to the reformation or in the reformation or whatever is right either um, but right. what we are saying is that hermeneutics is first of all about a it's first of all about like luke said earlier tell us what is this for what are we actually reading for and it's to know god and be, be and therefore be changed into God's image, who is Jesus, uh, into the image of Jesus. So that's that's what we're reading for. Um, and if you approach it from that perspective, certain things start to fall into place. And that doesn't mean every allegorical reading is going to be quote unquote right, but it's cer certainly some of them might make a bit might make a bit more sense to us if we start there where we, where they started instead of starting from a kind of enlightenment perspective where we're supposed to turn off our faith commitments, turn off our knowledge of any other part of the Bible, 
turn off our understanding of how the book develops even sometimes and just focus on this one uh, text microscopically. Um, if, if we would approach the, the Bible as one book and, and our reading with one purpose, uh, that would change a lot, I think. And to bring it back to the to the Reformation, which is where we launched from, <laughs> this has been great. This 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 uh, little trail onto hermeneutics, but this is actually what the reformers did as well. I mean, I think there's this common story that gets told about the Reformation that basically medieval the medievals are doing this kind of weird, fanciful, fourfold method. The reformers come along and focus just on grammatical, historical, literal sense of the text, and it's a half truth, right? Wrong. I mean, it, <laughs> it's a it's a half truth. I mean, it's certainly true that the reformers are reacting to some of the excesses of the medieval interpreters. Yes, uh, it's certainly true that they are focusing a renewed uh, emphasis on the literal sense, the historical sense of scripture. Mm -hmm. It's true that you can especially find in Luther a polemic against allegory. But then when you examine what they're actually doing, um, they permit it. I mean, even Luther in his in his. Uh, the introduction to his commentary on Genesis, uh, he says, you know, allegory is fine. Like as long as it's, as long as it's rooted in the literal sense, buttresses the literal sense, it's sort of like he calls it adornments and flowers on the, on the literal sense. Uh, and the same thing with Calvin. I mean, you read Calvin's commentary uh, and he'll, he'll often make reference to, to what we would consider allegorical interpretations. One that always stands out to me is his, his interpretation of Gen the Genesis text with Isaac uh, who was deceived by Jacob. And the text says that, that, that when, when Isaac uh, smelled the scent of Esau on Jacob's clothes, uh, he gave the blessing of Esau to Jacob. And Calvin actually quotes St. Ambrose interpretation of that text, who saw in it a type of the father's acceptance of us, not for our own sake, but because we are, we have the scent of Christ and mm -hmm. the robes of his righteousness on us. And Calvin accepts that as a valid interpretation of that text. Yeah. And so the reformers themselves, uh, with this high view of scripture, so, you know, putting scripture above the tradition, are still drawing on the tradition, not only doctrinally, but also hermeneutically. Right. And so to be to be committed to the Reformation and this, this uh, material principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, uh, is not in any way to just sort of cast out uh, the history of interpretation. Yeah, and to say it to say that a bit differently, uh, I would I would just add that what the reformers and early Baptists I'm going to keep mentioning Keach. Go read; it's a thousand pages, but who cares? What else are you going to do with your life? Uh, Keach's Tropologia is a hermeneutical textbook kind of thing, and he's all about the allegory, y'all. I'm just telling you, go read it. Uh, and <clears throat> for Luther, for Calvin, for Keach. For a host of others, the issue was not allegory per se. It was allegory untethered from the literal sense. And that's, but the thing is that if you go read Gregory the Great, or if you go read Origen, or if you go read, you know, whoever, that was always the idea was that the literal sense was the entryway into the spiritual sense, which you broke apart into three others, uh, or, or really two others. So the spiritual sense and then the moral or tropological and the eschatological or anagogical. And the idea is that those that there's doors through those senses that one leads to the other, and they're all rooted in, you have to start with the literal sense. And so what the reformers are reacting against is not allegory per se, it's allegory or tropology or anagogy 
all of which there are numerous examples of this problem in the late medieval period, untethered from the literal sense. And so we want to say, yeah, that is a problem. I mean, the, the reformers got that right. Uh, and they did, they did get it right to re-emphasize the literal sense, to go back to the sources, to pick up the original languages, all this sort of thing. We, we totally affirm all that. But it doesn't mean a complete rejection of pre-modern hermeneutics. Um, the, the other thing I would say is um, that for both the reformers and for the ancient church, Luke said this as well, there's a hermeneutical tradition. And if we want to try to maintain Trinitarian orthodoxy and Christological orthodoxy, there is an exegetical or a hermeneutical tradition that goes along with that doctrinal tradition, a tradition of biblical interpretation that doesn't read, say, Proverbs 8 isolated from every other passage in the Bible, but reads it in concert with 1 Corinthians 1, where Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. Okay, if Christ is the wisdom of God, then who can Proverbs 8 be talking about besides Christ? Nobody. And so if Proverbs 8 is talking about Christ, then how are we to understand that text? Well, verse 22, I always get these backwards, but I think it's verse 22 has to refer to the incarnation. Verse 25 has to refer to his eternal generation. And if I got it backwards, then it's vice versa. But in any case, the point is what they're doing is, is, is there's an exegetical tradition there that leads to the affirmation of a doctrine like eternal generation, which is the linchpin, one of the linchpins, at least, for the Nicene Trinitarianism. So <laughs> it's dangerous to try to just sort of pristinize the present and our current commitments and say, well, this is the only way to do things, and we need to reject everything that came before the Reformation. We, we're actually losing a lot more than we're gaining when we, when we take that approach. Which is ironic, because I think that the worry that many people have in evangelicalism with allegory is that it will become something liberal. I don't know if, if, if that makes any sense, right. but like we, we, we sort of feel like, you know, if, if we're, if we're not just, if we don't have sort of plain sense textual warrant for a particular reading that's rooted in the human authorial intention, if we don't have that kind of objective certainty, then the Bible just becomes a wax nose and we can make everything a metaphor basically we can make the resurrection a metaphor. We can make the virgin birth a metaphor. We just basically become liberal if we lose this sort of narrowly co conceived grammatical historical method. Uh, and I think what you're saying, Matt, is that, no, it's actually quite the opposite. Like if you lose this, the spiritual sense, if you lose this Christological orientation of the Bible, you actually lose orthodoxy. Like if you want, orth if you want orthodox doctrine, there was a method that got people there, right? Right. Uh, that goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to Jesus and the apostles, I would argue. Yeah. But then in the very earliest decades after that, with people like Justin Martyr, who reads who reads the proverb uh, wisdom personified exactly the way you're suggesting as a type of the eternal generation of the son, that was already there in the, right. in the second century with Justin. Right. And so, you know, the, 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 those kinds of hermeneutical moves to read the Old Testament in light of the definitive revelation of God in Jesus Christ that's how you get to Nicaea and Chalcedon and the others. Right. And so we, you know, just to be very clear, we don't want to say that uh, there's a kind of methodological uh, bar for fidelity, for Christian fidelity. Right. So I, I think when people, some people have heard that, and this has been a recent conversation on Twitter over the last few months, like, you know, 
okay, I'm okay with you saying nice Nicaea is required for saying you're orthodox, but to say that there's also this hermeneutic behind Nicaea, well, that just sounds, you know, whatever. And so we're not saying that like you have to have a set of hermeneutical methodological commitments or affirmations or whatever in order to be considered an orthodox Christian. I think what we are saying, though, is that it's difficult, if not impossible, to arrive at some of the doctrinal and creedal statements that are that are our boundaries for Christian orthodoxy without a kind of broader hermeneutical approach than just a very um, isolated, microscopic, um, autonomous, individualist view of a historical grammatical approach. And again, you know, there, there are ways to conceive of historical grammatical commitments, like an emphasis on intertextuality and typology to try to get closer. Um, but, you know, the, the, the more the historical grammatical and its cousin, the historical critical approach, older cousin really, um, are rooted in kind of enlightenment rejection of anything prior to the advent of modernity, the further away you're actually getting from your ability to exegetically prove uh, Nicaea and Chalcedon. Which, to be frank, may explain some of the confusion on the Trinity within evangelicalism. Yeah. I mean, if you just have a kind of proof text, grammatical, historical way of reading the Bible, which is, you know, what we're, what we're suggesting is not how Jesus and the apostles and the early church fathers read the Bible, um, then it's small wonder then that if you're reading the Bible that way, you find it difficult to affirm things like eternal generation. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's, you're right. It's not, we're not saying that like there's some orthodoxy behind orthodoxy, this secret, you know, code you have to affirm, but um, it seems like, it, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of left with only a kind of maybe nostalgia for the past as the basis for affirming Nicaea if we right. reject the hermeneutical moves that got us there. Right. Um, and that, that may not, be sturdy enough for many people. Yeah. Well, let's let's end with this. So we've been talking about the Reformation, Baptist as reformational, our, our commitments to the five sola of the Reformation, and particularly to sola scriptura. All of that is couched in this project called Baptist Catholicity. So how can we how can we call ourselves small C Catholic? if we're reformational Protestant, which was a break from Rome and Roman Catholicism? Mm. How'd you answer that? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I would just say that like, um, dissent is actually a part of tradition. Um, so, you know, Alistair McIntyre famously defined uh, a tradition as an extended argument through time. <laughs> Um, and so to, 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 to dissent, our dissent from the tradition takes place within the tradition. And that's just sort of how it works. Um, to, tradition doesn't mean that you, you sort of lock in, you know, one particular snapshot in time. I mean, not, not even Roman Catholics believe that. I mean, Roman Catholics still believe in the development of doctrine. You know, John Henry Newman sort of famously spelled out some of that. Um, you know, it's just that it organically grows from previous doctrine. But for Protestants, of course, our, our standard is, is the Bible, which means that the tradition can make missteps, uh, maybe even for long stretches of time, uh, that where things get uh, codified that, that don't have biblical warrant. And so, um, 
to be a Protestant is not to step outside of the tradition, but it's to stay within the tradition and, and seek a greater reformation according to scripture. And so that's a problem really that all Protestants have in terms of our little C Catholic identity. It's not, it's not unique to Baptists. Um, and I would say the same thing about our descent as Baptists from, uh, from infant baptism. It's not something that's outside of the tradition. It's something that's taking place within the tradition. Again, we can demonstrate that historically where, where our ideas came from. Uh, the kind of uh, genealogy of where the Baptist ideas came from that we talked about earlier. Um, but it, it, it's not to step outside of the tradition, but it's to seek a, a renewal within the tradition. So Timothy George referred to the Baptist movement as a renewal within a renewal. Yeah. I think he's referred to evangelicalism in that way as well, uh, that you have the renewal that is the Protestant Reformation, and then you have these other renewals, mm-hmm. even the evangelical movement, the Baptist movement, um, and, and that, that can be, um, a vibrant part of what it means to be, to belong to a tradition is that we have the ability to seek a greater reform according to scripture. So I don't know, how, how would you guys answer that? I think of Jim and Pam in the office when they, uh, you know, they talked to their friend who got a divorce recently and he says he knew something was wrong. He knew the marriage was done when they stopped fighting. And later in the episode, they, they're about to go home and they know they're going to have an argument and they think, oh, let's not do that. And she says, no, I want to go home and fight. And so, I, I, you know, as Baptists, the fact that we're here, that we're arguing about it means that we st- we're still identifying as part of that mm-hmm. tradition. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that to see as both of you have articulated, I mean, what we're trying to do is not step away from tradition, uh, but actually to go deeper into it. Uh, and, and both for Re- the reformers, first of all, and then for Baptists within the Reformation, it was, a, it was a, a, an attempt to go back to the sources to recover the faith that was once delivered. And so we're actually trying to go back further into the tradition. And ultimately for us, and for all Protestants really, uh, and especially um, Protestants like Baptists, uh, Reformed churches, and Presbyterians, and Lutherans, um, for us to affirm Catholicity is to affirm apostolic succession, but through the apostolic deposit of Holy Scripture rather than through the Bishop of Rome. I mean, that's really what we're trying to get at, is that Catholicity is unity achieved through apostolicity, And, and Roman Catholics would affirm the same thing. But for us, the source of apostolicity is the apostolic deposit, that is scripture, whereas uh, for them, it's scripture as interpreted by the Bishop of Rome. And so, you know, there's commonality in some ways there, but there's also very big differences. And so we just want to say that for us, Catholicity is ultimately found in uh, Holy Scripture as interpreted uh, by the believing community. That's where, that's where we are. Um, and that's going to, you know, this brings us to some differences that we'll discuss more later on, especially in article 11. Um, but, you know, pursuit of Catholicity is ultimately a pursuit of faithfulness to scripture. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Which is the deepest root of Catholicity that we can all agree on. Right. And we didn't talk about, we didn't go into the details here about these, the, the, the more soteriological components of, of what it means to be reformational, to be Protestant, um, you know, but we uh, are firmly committed to those things. We, you know, we believe that the scriptures teach 
justification mm -hmm. by faith alone, um, right. that we ought to trust in the imputed righteousness of Christ and not our own uh, merit and those sorts of things. Um, because, you know, determining what the right doctrine is is not just a matter of counting noses, you know, sort of going back through history and say, well, who, who believed this? Let's, let's count up like sort of majority rule, you know, and whenever, if we can count up, and this is why sometimes Protestants make the mistake of thinking like, we're going to go back to the early church fathers and find precedents for, for reformation ideas. Sometimes you can do that. And if you can make good on that, great. Uh, you know, you can show, for example, some, some substitutionary elements of the atonement in the early church fathers may not be the dominant element. You have these other models, ransom or whatever. Uh, but but in, there's a sense of which that that's not really what's required, right? I mean, if you have precedents in, in history, all much, you know, so much the better. But the, the ultimate root is the, the Bible, right? Like this, if the Bible convinces us of a particular truth, then right. um, then that's what we're seeking to recover. I mean, that's, that's the kind of pressure that it, uh, commitment to Sola Scriptura puts on us, that if we if we become convinced that the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Galatians is teaching justification not by works of the law, but by faith alone, well, then we have to go with the Bible, you know, no, no matter, even if theologians that we revere, that we hope to see in heaven, right, you know, like St. Augustine, who had a different view of justification, um, as much as we revere uh, people in the tradition in that way, um, again, the deepest root of Catholicity is the scriptures. Well, with that, uh, we're, we're finished talking through Article 3. Of course, the discussion's not done. There's lots of things else. Uh, there's lots of other things we could say, but we'll leave it at that for now. And so I'll close us uh, with the grace from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. 